Well, take your Bibles this morning. Philippians is where we're going to be uh, again as we continue our series uh, in the book of Philippians. And, and, we, and we continue on the theme that we began, living a life worthy of the gospel that we, thought, that we talked about last week in our overarching theme of rejoicing in unity. Now, I can't think of if we could boil it down to any one particular uh, uh, a situation or heart attitude that will affect rejoicing in unity and being side by side uh, together for the sake of the gospel, it is selfishness. Now, just by way of understanding, if, if you're here this morning and you, and you are honestly evaluating yourself, and I were to ask this question, slip up your hand if you believe this is true. You are a very selfish person. I'm trying to find the liars. All right? Now, if you're new uh, and you're thinking about filling out that Connect card, you're thinking now maybe you won't. <laughs> But do you realize that our own imperfections and struggle with selfishness in our own life is a long pursuit that we, that we will then recognize and it will continue on as we over and over and over again humble ourselves in the presence of the mighty God, recognizing all we have is Him. That's all we have. Because in and of ourselves, if we were to recognize that who we are I can't speak for you, but I can, I, can, I can speak for myself. I am the single most selfish individual I know. And if think of you were honest with yourself, you would probably say that same thing. You may disguise it, and we do a really good job at this. We disguise it so people don't know what's really motivating our heart. We come, we put a happy face on, we smile, we serve, but then sometimes inside, in our heart, there's something else going on. And it is that something else that Paul addresses in our passage today, but he does it in such a way that is so kind. Now, right before we get into our text this morning, I want to just remind us this, that this reality of, of the need for humility and recognizing that we are people who aren't here to exalt ourselves, but we are people who are here to serve because someone did this incredible job of serving us in which we memorialized together this morning and remembered in the ordinance of the Lord's table. You don't have to turn there, but I just want, you, I just want to remind you before we launch into our text of Matthew 20, in verse number 20, where this event happens. It says, And the mother of the sons of Zebedee came to him with her sons, and kneeling before him, Jesus, she asked him for something. And he said to her, what do you want? She said to him, say that these two sons of mine are to sit, one at your right hand and one at your left in your kingdom. Jesus answered, you do not know what you are asking. Are you able to drink the cup that I am to drink? They said to him, we are able. He said to them, you will drink my cup, but to sit at my right hand and my left is not mine to grant. But it is for those for whom it has been prepared by my father. And when the ten heard it, they were indignant at the two brothers. Now just stop for a moment and just remind yourself this. This was Jesus' closest disciples. 
And all of a sudden, uh, you can understand the grumbling. Like, I almost can envision this reality of the other ten disciples. Like, you sent your mom? Seriously? You couldn't even do it yourself? You sent mommy? And you got denied. But Jesus was going to make a point out of a heart disposition that was even in amongst his own disciples. Which is why I say to us, together as a collective body, far be it from us to not recognize what lurks in the darkest corners of our heart. It is selfishness and pride. Where we want to see ourself as someone great. We want to be at a place where others see our qualities. And Jesus jumps into this situation after this in verse 25. No doubt Jesus heard the grumbling of the other ten. It says, but Jesus called them to him and he said, you know that the rulers of the Gentiles lorded over them and their great ones exercise authority over them. It shall not be so among you. But whoever would be great among you must be your servant. And whoever would be first among you must be your slave. Even as the Son of Man came to be served, uh, did not come to be served, but to serve and to give his life a ransom for many. Now if you remind yourself of this particular idea in the text that is before us, that a life worthy of the gospel calls Christians toward an attitude of humility that will be displayed in selfless activity. See, it's not enough just for us to say, oh, I'm Christian and I want to be, uh, I, I want to love Jesus, I want to honor him, I want to worship him. You can't say that and not have it impact your will. If all it is is a bunch of words that don't impact your will, I would challenge you to, to even examine your own life to say, what fruit is there that would justify the very nature of my own admission that I am a person or I have made a profession of faith in Jesus Christ? Now, let's launch into our sections in Philippians this morning, recognizing uh, that he is still talking about this life, that he calls the Philippian believers to a life worthy of the gospel, a life that is so transfixed and satisfied on so many levels that he could say to them, I want you in one spirit. I want you with one mind, striving side by side for this faith in the gospel. This is a continuation of his, uh, of, of his, uh, of his teaching to the Philippian believers. So we still are maintaining, what does it look like to live a life worthy of the gospel? He started to lay it out in our text uh, last week, but he continues to unfold this in our present text. So as we look for this theme as it comes and it's unfold, this is one large section, Philippians 2, 1 through 11. We're only going to go through the first four verses this morning, and then we're going to take a break next week because there'll be a, a special speaker here, and then we're going to come back to this very important text of Philippians 2, 5 through 11 uh, that as Jesus, uh, as the text reveals how Jesus descended from heaven uh, to humanity. But look in our text this morning, follow along as I read. Paul says, so if there is any encouragement in Christ, any comfort from love, any participation in the Spirit, any affection and sympathy, complete my joy by being of the same mind, Having the same love, being in full accord and of one 
mind. Do nothing from selfish ambition or conceit, but in humility count others more significant than yourselves. Let each of you look not only to his own interests, but also to the interests of others. Now, as we come to this text, I think it really challenges us to ask ourselves the question, does my pursuit of a life that is lived out in a worthy nature to the gospel of Jesus Christ, to the person of Jesus Christ, how much do I look like that in my heart when I am tempted in a variety of ways to seek my own glory, to all of a sudden want my own way? We have to grapple with this in our own life because it is only you and you alone who can go before the Lord and say, no one else would know this, but I know you do. No one, is, no else, no one else may even detect this, but I know you do. And Paul appeals to the Philippian believers. And if just to make sure that historically we recognize that could you imagine sitting in the midst of the congregation at Philippi, okay, and they didn't, they didn't get the luxury uh, when the letter was delivered to them. This was a very exciting opportunity, and you could only imagine, they weren't saying, let's go through uh, chapter 2, verses 1 through 4, and then we'll just stop there and pick it up. No, 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 they, they read the whole entirety of the letter, and then you could imagine, as it came to certain points, they began to see something. And you probably see it by now as, as you have been probably reading through and focusing on the book of Philippians. He's talking about oneness of spirit, oneness of mind, oneness of attitude, like-mindedness, side by side together for the gospel. But you know as a congregation member what's been happening in the congregation. And you're thinking, uh-oh, <laughs> Epaphroditus let them know a little bit about our congregational situation. And you begin to be, assess your own life. Like, what part do I play in this? Because, by the way, there was disunity going on. There was conflict, not just outside the church. And this happens so often, I think, in the New Testament, that we, we recognize, and in the book of Philippians, it's no different. You get to chapter 3, and he says, look out for the dogs that are among you. Oh, man, we love to jump on those false teachers. Like, get them. Like, we know those guys. They're terrible. Then he starts turning around and he says, if I'm going to start talking to you about them, I first need to also talk about you. In order for you to confront them appropriately, you have to confront yourself. Because how can you live like a light among the generations, Paul would be thinking, if you can't even handle what's going on in your own heart and admit it? Oh, I can only imagine by, by the time chapter 4 comes around and all of a sudden he's calling out people by name like Yodi and Syntyche. I mean, you are in, inspired and inscripturated for all of eternity with that. I don't know if any of us here would be like, oh, pick me for that inspired text. I want to be the divine example of conflict resolution. No, not for us. But for us, we, we have to set this mindset because this is not just words that fall upon a situation that don't need to hear it. They desperately needed not only to live as lights in the midst of the generation that they had been called, but they needed to live as lights among one another, having the same mind. 
Now, Paul does this, and he gives us, really in the text, he unfolds three components of a life worthy of the gospel. And he starts in verse number one. I want you to see this. Uh, He starts with a call. There was a call because he's saying to them, now, it's it's quite fascinating in in the language because he, he... he really starts to, to bolster this in, in four key phrases, and you can see them unfolded on all these conditional clauses. So if there is any encouragement in Christ, any comfort of love, any participation in the Spirit, any affection and sympathy, this idea of exhortation, this calling them to say, and this is the, this is the emphasis of the conditional clauses here, as, as theologians and those who are studying the Bible uh, recognize this. If you really could understand it as, since you have encouragement in Christ. And this is not, if you might. No, it's, if you have encouragement in Christ. And I know you do. And I know you do. And this word, I, I just, I think it's so fascinating when you, when you hear Paul use the language that he was often uh, uh, taught, no doubt, by by. Uh, the apostles and by Jesus himself, where he would say, if there's any encouragement in Christ, this is the same exact kind of language and root word terminology of the paraclete, the comforter. When he says, when Jesus says, it's advantageous for me to go away because I'm going to send the paraclete, the comforter to you. He uses a derivative of this idea and says, If there's any comfort in Christ, and I know there is. Now, you have to ask yourself a question question as a student of the Word in this text. Why would all of a sudden he transfer into this compassionate plea where he almost uses two phrases, encouragement of Christ or in Christ and comfort from love? Now, draw your your attention back to verse 29 for a moment since we can't separate these in the sense of a letter. For he says, for it has been granted to you that for the sake of Christ, you should not only believe in him, but also suffer for his sake, engaged in the same conflict conflict that you saw I had, and now hear that I still have. Oh, there couldn't be something more special to a suffering individual who who is experiencing heartache, both from without and from within. To hear these words reminded, if there is any comfort in Christ... Oh, believers, we need the comfort of Christ because we are going to suffer in all kinds of different ways. And sometimes you will notice this as some kind of a, a, a standard. You see it all throughout the book of Acts. I think you see it in the epistles as well. How does Satan try to derail Christians on a regular basis? Persecution from without, dissension and disunity from within. If you, if you catalog it and you read through the book of Acts, it almost as if it flips back and forth. Okay, they're getting it from outside. Oh, now they've got issues with Ananias and Sapphira inside. And it just goes back and forth and back and forth. When it doesn't seem like you're dealing with something outside, I feel like as a pastor, oh, what's coming inside? And when I just finished up dealing with something inside, I'm thinking, what's coming from the outside? You haven't, haven't you felt like, Sometimes that happens over the course of a church life. Satan's tactics have not changed. Therefore, unity and the rejoicing of that unity comes from an encouragement, a comfort that we have that we are in Christ. And I think Paul is, is trying to say to them, doesn't being in Christ mean something to you? 
It is the sphere of your whole being. It's the sphere from which all of your spirituality exists. If it wasn't for this one man in real time in earth history who came from heaven, who sacrificed himself, you would be no one and nowhere. You have the encouragement because you are in Christ. And by extension, therefore, you then have the, Paul continues and says, and and, and in the text, it, it just simply states literally, if any encouragement of Christ, if any comfort of love, whose love? I think it's directly connected back to Jesus Christ. The love which surpasses all people who would ever gain an opportunity to, to genuinely express what love is, it is Jesus. Love is this, that you would lay down your life for a friend. Would you do that for people in this body? Would you do that for people you would be so fixated on an other-centeredness rejoicing in unity and fighting side by side, that you would fight on behalf of one another to make sure gossip and slander and bitterness and and dissension and disunity doesn't affect the body of Christ at the chapel. We have to make that commitment. Those of you who have become members, this is what we do together. You might think, oh man, I don't like that fighting part. No, we fight for unity. But it's, it's a call that that we have and we can accomplish because as we suffer together, here's one of the amazing facets of the body of Christ is that in some sense we're all not experiencing the same sufferings and I'm so glad that God in his sovereign hand would not dictate the fact that every one of us has to go through the same exact earthly circumstances in order to comfort each other. Can you imagine how bad he was like, oh, I don't know what to say to you, I haven't been through that. So many people are hesitant to give instruction and comfort and counsel because they, well, I haven't had that. You have Christ. You have his word. What more makes, what more authority do you need? What more words of life could you want? It's not your personal experience that make you qualified. It's the fact that you are in Christ, indwelt by the Spirit of God, sealed for the day of redemption. That same comfort, Paul says, that that you have received in 2 Corinthians 1 is the same comfort that you give to other people when when they need that. Oh, Christians, the call for us is to be a body of people who are so impacted by the comfort of Christ and the love of Christ. And he continues this and says, and if if any participation in the Spirit, and I know you have participation in the Spirit, You're saints. You've been called by his name, by the work of the Holy Spirit. And I think what he's trying to convey in this, this reality, this word participation, is a word that that he has used before, this word that we're so familiar with, this koinonia, this association of one another. I think what he's reminding them is, is, oh, oh, Philippian believers, you have a fellowship with the Spirit that is unmatched by any other sphere of fellowship that you will ever experience. And the fellowship that you experience in heaven as a result of the indwelling of the Spirit of God, you ought to be, it ought to be seen visibly amongst the people of God. And if all of a sudden we're not seeing the, the, the rejoicing in unity and fighting side by side, then we somehow are not reflecting on the very reality that we have fellowship 
with the Spirit. We have His love that comforts us. We have the Spirit of God, by the way, convicting you. Have you felt that this last week at some point? I hope you have. Because if you are feeling no conviction based upon what is going on in your Christian life, there is something wrong with your Christian life. And it, you might think it's existent, but what if it's non-existent? What if you are no longer, you're not even touched by the ways that sin impacts and no guilt and no feelings of shame? Oh, could you imagine what it would be like as a Christian if you didn't have the convicting work of the Spirit of God and the coinciding reality of shame that that brings to a genuine believer who wants to live before God? Oh, I can tell you what, I'd be like, doing whatever I wanted. It is that very fact of guilt and shame that his kindness draws us back to his love. And I know it hurts. It's so hard to actually be genuine and honest before the Lord to say, I am genuinely the most wicked sinner in this room. I think we have somebody like Paul who set an example of that. So don't be, don't be too fascinated with the reality like, oh my goodness, our pastor is the wickedest individual. Come and join, visit our church. The most wicked person is going to preach. They're going to come, they're going to admit their selfishness, and they're going to think, man, do I want to be part of this body? And we're going to say, well, we know you're selfish too, so you should feel right at home. But as you are there, marinating in the things of the gospel, it's supposed to challenge your heart to say, there's something still, it's off with me, something's wrong with me. And if it's sin, you have the opportunity to have the comfort of Christ, the love of Christ on your behalf to confess your sins, repent of them, and he brings freedom. Oh, I love that feeling. Oh, it wasn't just a, it wasn't just a one-time event at salvation when he took the burdens of my sin. Oh, it's a weekly and daily and sometimes hourly endeavor. God, please restore me to fellowship with you. Please make my heart be that of Christ who would de desire to serve. All these four statements are designed by Paul to bring an emphasis to these believers in Philippi to say, since I know you have all these things, any affection and any sympathy he is calling on all these sympathetic, affectionate words to say, and if you reminded yourself of Philippians 1 in the early parts of 3 to, 3 to 11, do you remember this? Oh, I have you in my heart. You are in my heart, Philippians. I love you so much. But because I love you, I have to say these things to you because you need them so badly and you're missing them. Of all these things, he says, I know you have he says, you have all of them, and let it overflow into the affection and sympathy that you have towards one another. And then he moves from this call, this sympathetic call, and he moves from it because why? I mean, he, what he's doing is he's drawing them in to say, come on, guys. Why the dissension among you? Yodi, Syntyche, why? You're, you, this, is not, this isn't supposed to be this way. And it doesn't have to be this way. Oh, this, this passionate and compassionate call to believers. 
is that very same call that drew us to the gospel of Jesus Christ. It was from his kindness and his grace and his compassion. I just couldn't imagine being, being there during the time of Jesus. I don't think it was just his miracles that enamored people, although that was certainly a highlight. But if you actually saw him teach and you heard his words, I think you would find one of the most gracious and compassionate individuals who was drawn, the crowds were drawn to him because of the power that he had, but with the compassion of a father in heaven with a message that said, for God so loved the world that he gave his only son, that whoever would believe in him can have eternal life. Oh, if you're here this morning, I don't know, maybe you recognize you're not even a believer, but you realize there's something different about the Christian community. There's something that motivates them that doesn't seem to motivate you. Can I, can I just tell you what it is? It's the kindness of Christ. It's his love for us in a way that he would sacrifice himself to draw us into a relationship that otherwise we would be destined to hell for eternity. And it is that love that he wants to love you with. And he offers it freely to you so that you can then become part of him, part of union with Christ and union with the body of Christ so that you can fight against the selfishness of your own soul because without him, you can't do it. You will forever be destined to be a selfish individual. And if you want to think, oh, come on, I don't need that. Oh, unbeliever, if you're here, let me just challenge you. Try to live selfless this entire week, doing nothing for yourself. Try it. And see what, see what it might say about you. And, and see if you might not come to the conclusion how badly you need a change of heart. Because without Christ and being in Christ and the love of Christ... You have no concern for anyone except for yourself. And once you get to that point, there's nowhere else to turn than a Savior who can redeem your soul, can renew and revitalize your, your, your heart by repentance and faith in Jesus Christ. And you can be His. And you can have the encouragement and comfort in Christ that so many Christians here value and appreciate. He moves on from the call and goes right to the command. And he says this in, in verse number two. He says, complete my joy. And now he's going to give these subsequent reasons on how they can do that. So he goes, here's the call. If you have any comfort in Christ, and I know you do, complete my joy, Philippian believers. Now, Paul just got done saying, oh, I'm so filled up with the joy that I have in Christ. But remember, Paul's sitting in a prison cell. Okay, he is enamored with how the gospel is on the move. How soldiers are embracing Christ and various components of the gospels taking root in different people's lives. Epaphroditus comes, tell him this, tells him the situation of the church in Philippi, and they realize, and he realizes there's something wrong. So it's not, don't get Paul, don't, don't hear Paul saying this. Well, I don't have enough joy in Christ. Could you complete some joy that's deficient in mine, because that's not what he's saying. What he's saying is, I have such a great joy when I find the people of God walking in unity with one another, and I know you're not. 
There's conflict in your midst. There's wrong motivations in your heart. You're looking amongst the congregation in the Philippian church, and there's, and there, there's factions, there's division. He said, it's almost like this call from a fatherly standpoint where he's just saying, if you want to know the one thing that will make my joy continue to erupt with rejoicing, be at peace and be in unity with one another. He calls him, if, and he's simply saying, if I'm, gonna sit, I'm sitting in the prison cell for the sake of the gospel of Jesus Christ, and if those words reach my ears from one of your uh, servants like Epaphroditus, oh, it will enhance my joy. As I sit here knowing that this is God's sovereign plan, I will rejoice on your behalf because you will make my joy complete. Please do it, he's saying. This is a command to them. It's an imperative statement to say, do this, and you will, you will encourage my soul. And if there's one thing about the Philippian church that we do recognize, is they deeply, deeply wanted to be an encouragement to Paul. They wouldn't have sent Epaphroditus. They wouldn't have given to Paul's ministry. They wouldn't have, have, have gone in all of these efforts to be part of, of, of Paul's team. He knew that, and he's saying to them, complete my joy. Do the things that you, that you know that would be honoring to Christ, and here's what they are. He says it comes with the, the mindset of this. By being of the same mind, having the same love, being in full accord and of one mind. Now, he simply stated, uh, having the same mind just simply means thinking the same things. Well, on who? On what? Well, certainly the sake of the gospel and not only the gospel, but how the gospel works itself out into the unity of the brethren. And those two things, he says, you must think the same way because you have all these things in Christ, but I'm not seeing that overflow into the unity of Christ that you possess. He says, think the same things, which, by the way, if you're a Christian and you're a member of a congregation and your desire is to think the same things, what better place to go than to have a regular diet of reading your Bible? but I can't tell you how many Christians who are in various suffering circumstances and I will ask them one simple question. What is your devotional life? And what have you been reading? And what have you been meditating on? And they will all, all typically say, eh, they don't want to totally admit that it's not there, so they think, it's not so good. And like they, they fear that frightful next phrase like, well, can you tell me what that means? Oh, I thought you wouldn't ask. See, we've got to ask that in the body of Christ. See, as you're developing God-centered relationships and spirit-indwelt life together, it shouldn't be odd in the community of believers as you get together for coffee, as you rejoice in fellowship, that you say to one another, tell me what you've been learning. Tell me what you've been enjoying about Christ. It shouldn't be an odd component. Think the same things. Well, you can accomplish that, believer by focusing your hearts and mind on the gospel of Jesus Christ and the totality of the revelation that, Jesus has, that God has given to us in the Bible. That is your place. You can't say, I want to think the same things, but I'm going to spend more time outside the Bible reading stuff than inside the Bible reading stuff. You've got to devote yourself, as the Bereans did, to the reading and the study of the Scriptures. Have the same mind, think the same thing. Have the same love being in full accord and of one mind, really this idea 
Uh, and I love this statement, being in full accord. It's, he uses the word, one-souled. It is if, no matter who they talk to in the body, this is the expression, if they talk to any one member, they would get the same one-souled perspective. They would get the same gospel. They would get the same attitude. And no matter where they went, they're just like, they're just the same. And yet they're so different. There's diversity in the midst of unity. And God has designed the body in such a way so that we would, so that we would find ourselves focusing on our minds, the intellect, the affections, and the will. He says this command and he moves straight from the call to the command and he says, if you recognize these things in the call, if you want to make my joy complete by thinking the same way, now he says, this is what will be the result. This will be the consequences if you choose to live a life like this. In verse three he says, do nothing from selfish ambition or conceit, but in humility count others more significant than yourselves. Let each of you look not only to his own interest, but also to the interest of others. Do you find that hard? I'm living by myself right now. It's really easy. It's do what I want, go where I want. But don't you find it so difficult to actually say, I'm going to put someone else's benefit above my own. And he starts off with this. He starts out with the thing that you ought to, move yourself away from. He says, there shouldn't be any selfish ambition or vain conceit. I think it's interesting the way that King James writes the conceited part. Vain glory kind of gives you an indication of what he's trying to shoot for. You've all met that person who can do nothing other than talk about themselves and they know everything about everything and you get done with the conversation and that you think, wow, I mean, why doesn't everybody just... Talk to them. He'll so, they'll solve all their problems. They're so all wise. Or in the back of your mindset, you're hearing this going on, and you're saying to yourself, they won't shut up. Like, what, what is wrong with them? See, selfish ambition is the very antithesis, the enemy of humility. And we know it in terms of selfishness because we understand the idea of pride. Pride and selfishness go hand in hand. In fact, uh, if, if you could put them in the same category, a selfish heart on one side of the coin will always produce selfish will on the other. No matter what's going on, when your heart is being selfish and prideful, don't be so shocked that it's, produce, it's producing godly things. What you should be shocked with is if you have a wicked, prideful heart and, and you honestly think you're doing something spiritual. That should shock you. See, selfish ambition moves its way into expressing, I want success, I want to be elevated, this self-aggrandizement where we can't stop wanting people to look at us. Oh, Christian, I know it's still within the heart and the darkened soul of even Christian people at times to, to have others recognize the qualities of who we are. For what? For vainglory. Vainglory is the expression of it's empty. It's empty conceit. You go through all these efforts and all these things to help people realize how amazing you are and then you get to the end of it and it's like, well, that was worth nothing. 
Can I, can I just tell you, if, that, if, if selfish ambition and conceit is in your heart, imagine what the judgment seat of Christ will look like for you. All this meanwhile, you thought you were doing these great things, only to have him revealed all the thoughts, words, and actions as worthless in his sight. Christians, spend some time evaluating your own heart because I know that these, that these exist because they exist for me. They exist in small ways in the darkest corners of my heart. Like, uh, okay, so this is shameful, but I'll share it anyway. I, I remember the reality of like, and this is such a, this is such a foolish, simple thing. My wife was gone one particular uh, weekend. I thought, ooh, I'm going to do, do something for her. I'm going to be selfless. Yes, this is my opportunity. So I cleaned the whole house. There's nothing, I mean, she, just, she enjoys that. Maybe you wives are the same, okay? She came home after that weekend, and she came in. She was exhausted. She was working through. She didn't she have any idea what was going on in my wicked, selfish heart. And she just came in, kind of blew by everything. It's like the floors were glistening. I mean, the scent of Clorox was everywhere. It's like, I mean, it's like I stood like the king of cleanliness, asking my wife to bow before the king of cleanliness. Just recognize it. And when she just kind of blew by it, because that wasn't the first thing on her mind. (laughs) Mm. There was something in my selfish, darkened heart that was doing something that was good for my own benefit, for my own exaltation, for her to say, oh, you are the best husband, I'm going to go out more. For her to say, oh, there is none like you. It's like, and I would just, I was standing there as the king of cleanliness just waiting for all the accolades. Like, come on, don't, yeah, come, bring them on. Because our hearts are so dark and selfish, we find that in the moments of these things that our selfishness starts to spill out. Christian, guard yourself, because if you're anything like I am, sometimes it happens when you least expect it, and it even happens when you set out trying to do a good thing, and your fleshly heart wants to do another. Guard your heart, because out of it flows the issues of life. He says, do nothing out of selfish ambition or conceit, but consider others more important than yourself. That is the heartbeat of this main emphasis here, to live a life that is worthy through humility and looking upon others' interest is better than your own so that Jesus Christ would be glorified. I would challenge you, Christians, I know this resides in your dark heart because it resides in mine. And oh, the glorious day when one day we get, to get, we get to be together in heaven as one body, when all of a sudden we'll never think a selfish thought again. Oh, I can't wait for that day. To not have to wake up dealing with my own pride and selfishness. Wanting to be the king of the cleanliness kingdom so that God would be glorified in me so that I wouldn't be a glory robber of something that only belonged to him. 
that it would simply be a humble servant in the eyes of the Savior who did everything for me. Why do we do this? On his very last slide, 1 Corinthians, Paul says this. He says, you were bought with a price. You are not your own, for you were bought with a price. So glorify God in your body. Everything you do, rejoice in unity. Have the same mind. Have the comfort of Christ, the love of Christ. And go out this week and figure out how you can live in a way that is not about you. Begin to ask yourself, how can I... How can I show my husband that they're more, that I want to be selfless and how can I treat them as in a way that's kind and gracious and put something on my agenda away for his agenda? And what about you as husband saying, you know what, what if I can set something aside on my agenda so I can do something for you? Or as a father, go out and spend time with your kids. Don't be a workaholic and all of a sudden you're saying to yourself, why is, I, why is it that I don't have any family unity? Because you're never home. Jesus Christ wants us to impact the, the discipleship of the community, but that starts in your own life, in your own marriage, in your own home. It starts with your friendships. You have things that perhaps someone else doesn't have, and you begin to start saying, I need to, I need to catalog a list of things that I have that someone else might not have, and I can say, I'm going to do this for so-and-so this week because they don't have something and I could be a blessing to them. Spend some time this afternoon thinking, where is it that you might need to confess of their own selfish things in your own heart so that you will be the kind of humble individual that God desires for you to be? It's a hard task. We need to do it together And as we see the Spirit working in us and unity welling up around us, we will rejoice and admit all the glory belongs to him because none of that's possible without Jesus Christ. Let's pray. Father, we thank you for your incredible kindness to us. But we need your help. We are people who are still a work in progress. People who still, as we search our heart, have selfishness that we know still resides there. But it's selfishness that can be forgiven, confessed, repented of, and you can restore us to a relationship with you and with others. Lord, help the body of the chapel Lord, to seek after this so that we can rejoice in unity and bring all glory to your name. In your name we pray, amen.